Let's pray together this morning. Lord, we come to you this morning to sit under your word. I pray, Lord, that our ears would listen, that our hearts would be open, that our lives would be changed as a result of hearing your word and submitting to it. Will you do what we can't? Will you make us look like Jesus? Will you sanctify us? Would you use your word to mold us into Christ-likeness? We love you, Lord. We love your word. Give us ears to hear this morning. Amen. Amen. Good morning, IDC. If we don't know each other, I'm Manny Prieto. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, I've been here for a number of years. And uh, you might know me from my days serving in the worship band, uh, playing sick guitar solos for you, or actually not doing that. But I was in the worship band at some point. If we haven't met, it's possible, though, that you have met my children. I've got four beautiful girls. If you haven't met them, you've at least heard them. I guarantee you, you have. We've got four beautiful girls, two by way of adoption and two uh, that we had biologically. And there's a joke on my wife's side of the family. Her maiden name is Abraham, uh, that all the kids born to an Abraham look like an Abraham, regardless of what you mix them with. And so when we had our first biological daughter, uh, I just came to peace with this reality. This kid is going to look nothing like me, and that's okay. Uh, well, she was born, and I noticed a little red mark on the back of her neck, and I thought to myself, I've got that red mark. Here is my genetic contribution to my girl. Well, come to find out, it's called a stork bite. I think just about everybody has one, and then it goes away. And sure enough, my daughter's birthmark went away. And so she looks just like my wife. If you've seen her, you know that's true. Uh, I, I laugh about this, but the reality is, we are often very quick to look for physical ways that families resemble one another. He's got his daddy's eyes. That's his mommy's smile. That's grandma's nose right there. That's a trait I'll be passing on to my kids, I fear. We're all quick to look for the physical markers that distinguish us, that make a family look like a family. The reality is, in our family, we've got quite a bit of diversity. We've got white, black, Cuban, Nicaraguan, Indonesian, Kenyan, all together, all represented. So it's not easy to find a physical characteristic that makes us look like one another, that unifies us. In fact, at this stage in our family's life, if you had to pin it down and say, what's the one thing that makes a Prieto a Prieto? I really think it would be just the sheer volume, the amount of superhuman sound levels that can come from these small children. That's what sets us apart from one another. If you've met my girls, you know that to be true. I apologize for your hearing loss. When we consider God's family and what God's family looks like, we come up short in a similar way, if, especially if we're trying to find a unifying physical characteristic. No Christian comes upon right standing before God by being born into the right family. Salvation is not dispensed along ethnic lines or national boundaries. God's family instead is knit together in a supernatural way. But just because it's a family that transcends physical traits doesn't mean there aren't any marks. In fact, 1 John highlights four tests or marks of those with genuine saving faith, those in God's family. In chapter 3, today's text, starting in verse 10, we're going to focus in on John's emphasis on love, love for God's children as a birthmark of new life. We're going to organize our time in this text by looking at two families, Cain's family and Christ's family. 
These families go all the way back to Genesis. Each of these families is recognizable by certain traits. And today we're zooming in on love or the lack thereof as a key family trait. It's what sets them apart. Just imagine we're going to do a little spiritual ancestry DNA together. There are only two options. There are only two families. There are God's children and there are the devil's children. And this text is unambiguous. If we belong to Jesus' family, we will love one another in action and in truth. To put it another way, our love for God's people is evidence of whose family we belong to. So let's explore the family tree this morning. We're going to look at Cain's family first. What marks Cain's family? From the text, we can find that Cain's family is defined by enmity with God and enmity with his children. Cain's family is marked by animosity towards God's family. So there's two families that we're dealing with here. Remember, there's just two options. There are no third options. There are no third parties here. It's just God's kids and the serpent's kids. It feels intense, right? Just two families, just two options. Only two families you can belong to. It is. It is heavy. It is intense. These two families are rooted in the first few chapters of Genesis, and you can trace them all throughout the entirety of the biblical narrative. What forms the families and what evidences do they produce? Well, the families have their roots in Genesis, but they're defined in terms of their response to God's gospel message. How do they respond to God's provision for humanity? Verse 11 references the message heard from the beginning. What is that? What's the message heard from the beginning? It's the apostolic gospel, the good news, the proclamation of good news that sin can be forgiven and we can be right with God by faith in Jesus Christ alone. We can receive this message with open arms as the desperate sinners that we are, or we can reject it. We can choose to rely on our efforts. The message heard from the beginning is the good news of Jesus for sinners. And that's not all. Receiving this message Believing this message in faith produces fruit. And what specific fruit is John referring to here? Loving one another. From the very beginning, the command to love one another goes hand in hand with the gospel. You can't separate those two. It's a natural product of believing the good news and belonging to God's family. We should take note here that love for one another is not what causes someone to be in God's family. Rather, it's the result of being in God's family. We love because we're in God's family, not to get into God's family. Naturally, a rejection of the gospel would also mean a rejection of God's family and that family trait of love. The gospel message heard from the beginning, which includes the command to love one another in its very essence is contrasted with one of the devil's children, Cain. We should love one another unlike Cain, who was of the evil one. The text is drawing out for us the limbs of this particular family tree. He was of the evil one and murdered his brother. This language brings to mind John 8, where some Jews are fundamentally misunderstanding 
how God's family traces its lineage. We are descendants of Abraham. Abraham is our father, they tell Jesus. And finally, they arrive at the statement, we have one father, God. And how does Jesus respond to them? In John 8, verse 42 and on, he tells us, if God were your father, you would love me because I came from God and I am here. And then in verse 44, he says, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. Their rejection of Jesus as the Messiah, their lack of love for the Son of God evidences which family they belong to. Their actual family ties are laid bare by the testimony of their love or lack of. It doesn't matter whose bloodline they came from. Their father is the devil. These are weighty words. He was a murderer from the beginning. Let's keep tracing this family tree. We'll jump into the story in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve have believed the serpent's lies and failed to trust God's goodness, his provision. They have disobeyed his word. They heard the same whisper that we hear today. Did God really say? Did God really say? And they believed the lie. Sin has consequences. And they're listed out in this passage. And among the consequences, we find a promise in verse 15. God says to the lying serpent, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Here are the two families in Genesis 3. The offspring of the, serv- of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. The devil's children and God's children right here in Genesis 3. We also have a promise that one day the true offspring of the woman the one true son of God will crush the serpent's head. It's a wonderful promise when things seem darkest. It'll serve us well to trace the lineage of this offspring throughout the pages of the scriptures. We don't have time today to stop at every point and investigate every branch on the family tree. But I would encourage you to do that in your study of the scriptures. What a breath of life and fresh air to know this this promise of the true offspring and then to get hit in early January with some lengthy genealogies in your Bible reading. What a breath of life into those lengthy genealogies. I encourage you, trace the offspring. So now we know what the promise is. There's a true offspring that's coming. There will be enmity between the two families and we're looking for one offspring that will put an end to the serpent. All right, let's get to it. Well, you hop over to chapter four in Genesis and Adam and Eve have kids. Maybe this is a short story. Not so fast. Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve's kids, bring offerings to God. Abel's offering is pleasing to the Lord, but Cain's not so much. Cain is livid. God says, why are you mad, Cain? In Genesis four, verse six, he says, why are you furious? And why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, Won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Does that language remind you of anything? Maybe 1 John 3.10. Whoever does not do what is right is not of God, especially the one who does not love his brother. Oh boy. Spoiler alert. Cain kills Abel. 
From the same earthly mom and dad, we have both an offspring of the serpent and an offspring of God. From Genesis 4, we begin to understand that natural bloodlines don't automatically make us children of God. But didn't the offspring that we were rooting for just get murdered? Don't worry. A promise is not lost. God gives Adam and Eve another son, Seth. I know you've been studying your Bible genealogies and you know this, but Seth makes an appearance in Luke in a genealogy tracing Jesus. God's promise remains. So we're able to trace this back all the way to the beginning, back to the fall in Genesis. John gives us an explanation in the second part of verse 12 that provides the background for verse 13. Why did Cain murder Abel? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Hebrews 11.4 tells us that the differentiating mark between Cain and Abel was faith. Abel had faith and he was counted as righteous. Cain did not. The reason for the murder is the enmity, the hostility between the offspring and the promise. The offspring of the serpent and the offspring of God are at odds. And the serpent is forever grasping at the chance to strike the heel of God's offspring. Satan, through his offspring, is continually trying to upset the promise. As you read through the pages of Scripture, you continually find examples of the serpent's offspring trying to cut off the offspring of God. Fast forward to the death and resurrection of Jesus, and the death blow to the serpent's head has been struck. Until the day of final deliverance, the mortally wounded serpent slithers about seeking a heel to strike. John thinks it's important for us to know this. We ought to be aware and informed. We ought to be on guard. We need to recognize the marks of these two families and know their history. We need to know our own place in the grand narrative of God's offspring crushing the serpent's head. So now we're up to speed on the background. We can move along. We remember that Cain's family is marked by hostility towards God's children. And then we arrive at verse 13, where John tells us, do not be surprised. Stop being surprised that the world hates you. Why not be surprised? If we understand how the curse and the promise of Genesis 3 carry throughout history, we won't be surprised at the hostility. God's children can expect to be hated by the offspring of the serpent. Cain is a prototype of the world. In Cain, we can easily see the impulse behind the serpent's offspring. It's not just that we're an inconvenience. To the serpent, God's children are the constant reminder of this defeat by the true offspring. Listen to Jesus' words in John 15. If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Jesus is not surprised by the world's hostility. He knows what's going on. He knows the hostility between the serpent, his offspring, and God's family. In John 17, Jesus prays, I have given them your word. The world hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Christian, hear this. We need to stop being surprised at the world's hostility toward us. We need to stop looking to the world to welcome us and accept us. 
We need to stop thinking of the world as our home. We are not from here. We are ambassadors here. We ought to seek the good of the city, just as Israel was commanded in exile. But we should know which family we belong to. And we should know what kind of reception to expect from the world, from the serpent's offspring, from Cain's family. Listen here to the words of Martin Niemöller. He's a German, or was a German pastor and one of the founders of the Confessing Church during the Nazi regime. He says, The fellowship of Jesus has no promise that it will ever be in the majority. We must indeed guard against thinking that there can ever be any kind of human security or assurance against the world's hatred. All parleys, all truces, all peace treaties are unreal, for the world must hate the Christian fellowship. And because of the fellowship, so long as it is a Christian fellowship, cannot hate, it must suffer at the hands of the world. The motto of the community of Jesus is, we are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, cast down, but not destroyed. It is indeed a conquered world which seeks to terrify us. It is indeed a condemned and dying hatred which attacks us. I want to point out that while the text calls us to not be surprised at the world's hatred, while the text is informing us why the world hates us, we're never called to respond in like. We're never called to retaliate or meet hatred with defensiveness or self-preservation. We are not absolved from loving the lost with the same love that Jesus has for them. There are only two families, but is our God not in the business of changing which family we belong to? Didn't we all at one time who are now in God's family actually belong to Cain's family? Consider the Apostle Paul's testimony. By all accounts, a child of the devil, hating and persecuting God's children, killing them. That is until Jesus stepped into his path, literally, and brought him from death to life. Once a child of Satan, counted among the serpent's offspring, now made alive and counted in God's family, Christian, is that not your story too? What is your posture toward the world? Are you tempted to seek its approval? Do you long to be accepted? Or perhaps, do you feel resentment towards the world because of the hostility? Are you meeting the world's hostility with your own? Or do you see them as Jesus does, the one who came to seek and save the lost? Let's keep exploring the family tree. We know that Cain's family has roots all the way back to the cursing of the serpent. We know this family is an enmity with God's children. What else do we learn from the text? At this point, I think we start to see John's main idea that love for God's people is evidence of which family we belong to. Love or a lack thereof are identifying markers. They are family traits. For the believer, love for brothers and sisters in Christ is an assurance of being spiritually alive. John says we can know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brothers and sisters in Christ. The love for brothers and sisters is evidence of the life within. If we are alive in Christ, we will love his people. The end. The inverse tells us something too. The one who does not love remains in death. Do you feel the weight of that statement? Lacking in love, and specifically, lacking love for God's people 
is evidence of spiritual death. It is evidence that someone has not passed from death to life, but rather remains, abides in death. If they were alive, they would love. But they are not alive. They are dead, so they hate. Love and hate evidence our family ties. The absence of love is synonymous with hatred here. This is the essence of the hostility between Cain's family and Christ's family. What does your life attest to? Is your love obvious? Can everyone tell that you look like your father? Do you love God's people? In verse 15, we learn that everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. I think there's a parallel between this statement and Jesus' words in Matthew 5. We're reminded in both that God knows the heart. And from the heart comes the fruit. Murder begins in the heart. It stems from anger and hatred. And John's not letting us dismiss the argument simply. Well, I haven't literally killed anybody, so obviously this text isn't about me. Not so fast. Murder is downstream from hatred, but they share the same sinful root. And to cultivate that root is evidence of spiritual death. No murderer has eternal life residing in him. Those are heavy words. We shouldn't take them lightly. John isn't just saying, you know what would be nice if Christians were nice to each other? That would be so nice, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it just make everybody feel great if we did that? Let's give it a try. No, no. Life and death hang in the balance. To love is evidence of life. And to not love, to hate, is akin to murder and it's evidence of death. It matters profoundly which family you belong to. It's worth noting here that hates is in the present tense. I think this indicates ongoing and current, and a current condition. Why is this important? I think it points to a truth we addressed in covering Paul's testimony. John is addressing the current condition of hearts. If Jesus has saved us, then we hated past tense. That hate no longer convicts us. That sin no longer accuses us. We can look instead to the present fruit of love for God's people to reassure us of our standing. I also think it points to the reality that God saves sinners and may yet save those who are currently in Cain's family. Do we pray for those who hate us? Do we ask God to bring them from death to life? Do we pray for their hate to be transformed into the love that marks God's family? Hatred and murder can be washed by the blood of Jesus. Do you believe that? Do we rest assured in God's work? Are we cultivating the fruit of love in our own lives? Murder in the heart and eternal life are mutually exclusive. Are we uprooting vestiges of hatred in our lives? Did you murder anybody this week on Twitter or Facebook? Did you murder in your heart when you reposted that meme? Is it evident who your father is? All right, so we've started to get a picture of Cain's family and started even to get some glimpses of Christ's family by comparison. But let's keep looking at the text. What else does the text tell us about God's children? What is Christ's family like? Well, Christ's family is formed and defined by love in action. In verse 16, 
says, this is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We know love because God has loved us in Jesus. This is how we're to define love. This is our standard. There's a lot of confusion today about what love is. We're we're bombarded on every front with wrong ideas about love. Love is getting to do whatever you want. Love is being free of obligation. Love is sex. Love is bodies as commodities. Love is a feeling and it's fleeting. But what does the Bible say? How good are we at identifying false love and rejecting it? Or do we let our guard down and let it seep in? Is love just something we feel? Or is it something we do? Is love something that just happens to us? Or is it something we cultivate? Why don't we let God's word define it for us? This is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us. Love is self-sacrifice for the good of another. We can know love because we've been loved by God in Jesus. And we've been loved in a specific way. We've been loved by God through his own self-sacrifice in Jesus on the cross. Love is an action, an act. To quote the 90s philosophers, DC Talk, I don't care what you say. I don't care what you heard. The word love, love is a verb. You guys are young. You don't know that song. I'm not sure if we can expect Donnie to lead this in that song after, but you can ask. It doesn't hurt to ask. It matters that we understand love in this way. We who belong to God's family are called to love one another. We're called to do this as ambassadors. We bear witness of God's love to the world by how we love one another. Jesus tells us this in John 13, verse 35. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It's important that we not confuse love. That's why we must know how God defines love and the love we're called to. We shouldn't confuse God's love and the love we're commanded to have for our brothers and sisters with the factious love of the world. The the world's got a love and it's clicks. There's nothing radical or prophetic about people who are like each other, defending their own clan, preserving their self-interest in a group. There's nothing special about that. Any old Joe can do that without the Holy Spirit changing their hearts. What is radical about the love of Christians for one another is that Christians are not united to each other by any natural affiliations. It's not natural family. It's not country. It's not ethnicity. It's not social or economic status. It's not common interest. What binds Christians to one another is exclusively the blood of Jesus. That is what gathers us together into a family. So this brotherly love bears a revolutionary witness to a watching world. It matters how we understand love and how we live it out because as God's ambassadors in the darkness, we are how they see Jesus in the world. We are how the lost see Jesus in the world. Our love for one another must rise above shared natural interest. It's fine to love and like Christians who agree with you on every point or who look like you or whom you feel comfortable around, but we can't reduce this love to just that. That same love must extend to the Christian who disagrees with you. The one you just don't get. The one who makes you uneasy, or maybe even a little irritated. The one who voted for the other guy. Yeah, I said it. You're called to love that Christian too. 
We have to strive for this love for the sake of our witness. What do we do about liking versus loving? Okay, I get it. I'm supposed to love him. Do I have to like him too? David Allen might be helpful for us here. He says, Liking is a matter of personal preference. Loving is a matter of obedience to Christ and the word of God. Love penetrates beyond the superficial and moves to the essence of the person. It overcomes obstacles and excuses. Love sees beyond what it does not like in a person and minimizes it in order to see the person as Christ sees him. Then seeing that person in that way opens the door to acting toward that person in a Christ-like way. Loving people doesn't mean, sorry, loving people you don't like means treating them as if you did like them. How revolutionary is that? You choose to act toward them in a way that is pleasing to Christ and that exhibits how Christ would act toward them. The nature of Christian love is that it acts. It gives. It expresses itself toward others. Brothers and sisters, this isn't a matter of hypocrisy. It's simply doing what is right, what we're commanded to do as the children of God. So now we're moving to the very practical. Where the rubber meets the road, if we're going to follow the family footsteps, we have an example to live out, the example of Jesus. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters, the text tells us. That's the standard. You've been loved with this kind of love. Now you must live it out. We would affirm it. But how do we actually live that out? What does it mean to lay our lives down? On an obvious level, it means giving up your actual life for another. We've heard this before. I would take a bullet for you. I believe the scriptures would affirm that sentiment. We're told this in John 15. No one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends. But do we need to wait for the opportunity to give the ultimate sacrifice to love one another? Do we need to wait for a proverbial bullet to jump in front of? Is that all that this kind of love entails? Imagine you're married. Some of you actually are married, so it shouldn't be hard to imagine. You make your vows. You tell your spouse, baby, I would die for you. I would take a bullet for you. I will defend you from robbers with a greater intensity than Kevin in Home Alone. Great. That's good. But now are you just going to sit around and wait for the robbers to come in so you can prove your love? Are there not other opportunities to give evidence of your love? Some of you need to hear this. Can you not take out the trash and get off the couch? Can you not put your phone down and engage your spouse? Can you not think of something that would serve them and then do that thing unprompted without a special occasion and with a gracious attitude? Think on that. You don't need to wait for the opportunity to give the ultimate sacrifice to show your love. You can prove that love today, and you should. John doesn't seem to think literally dying for somebody is all that we're called to do to live out the love we've received in Jesus. John moves from the supreme sacrifice of dying for someone to the very earthy application. If anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need, what are this world's goods? I don't think it implies riches. This isn't a command to the wealthy alone. The world's good implies the basics of a livelihood. Do you have enough to share? I suspect for most of us, the answer is yes. We have enough to share without starving our kids, without losing our homes, without having to have our cars repossessed. We have enough. I would encourage you here to extrapolate beyond just what is material. 
You can give more than your money. You can give more than physical goods. Give your time. Give your ears. Give your talents. Give your voice for those that aren't heard. Do you have something that another lacks? Do you possess a good of this world that your brother or sister doesn't? What example do we have in Christ? Should we not give? And what does it mean to see a fellow believer in need? It means to know. It means entering into the lives of others. This isn't throwing some coins at a need. This isn't love at a distance. This is knowing a person and knowing their need and loving them with God's love in very practical and tangible ways. And it includes, yes, with our material resources. To do otherwise is to close our hearts against them. As the ESV says, if anyone has what they need to survive, if anyone has what they need to get by okay in life and sees a fellow believer who is in need and withholds compassion, closes his heart against, how does God's love reside in him? The question is rhetorical. To withhold compassion, to close your heart, is incompatible with God's love abiding in your heart. To close your heart is to show the traits of Cain's family, not Christ. Finally, John tells us, little children, let us not love in word or speech. It's almost as if John anticipates our tendency to reduce love to feelings or words, to reduce it to just the intangible. It's easy for us to say we love someone in the abstract. Listen to this quote from G.P. Lewis. It's easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H than it is to love individual men and women especially those who are uninteresting, exasperating, depraved, or otherwise unattractive. Loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. Are we guilty of this? Of loving only in the abstract, only with words, only when it requires no work, no action from us? Who do you love? Who are you loving? Can you think of a person? Can you think of actual specific people? What are you doing to bless them? Can you think of specific things? How are you serving them? Don't leave it in the abstract. Loving in truth means loving in action. And loving in truth is set in contrast against just loving in words, loving in talk. All that to say that for love to be true, it necessitates action. Love that is only words isn't love. It's empty talk. It's not enough to say words about love. Love is something we must do. This brings to mind James 2, where faith that is only expressed in well-wishing words to someone in need is insufficient. Faith results in action, in works. Love, similarly, is a product of faith, of being welcomed into God's family, and it requires action. There's only two families. Cain's family or Christ's family. The family that we belong to has eternal ramifications. The family we belong to marks the difference between life and death. From the very beginning, God has been creating a people for himself. In his loving provision, he has set hostility between the offspring of the serpent and his own children to set them apart. His promise stands true, having sent his true son Jesus to crush the head of the serpent and welcome all who believe and trust into this new family. The serpent and his offspring are marked by their hatred of God and his offspring. The children of God are a constant reminder 
of that which they have rejected and rebelled against. Those who receive righteousness by recognizing their need and placing their faith in Jesus become God's family. They are co-heirs with Christ. In Jesus, they inherit all that the Father has given to him. The world will hate them as they hated him, but he has overcome the world. God is in the business of raising the dead to new life. He's in the business of making beloved children out of his enemies. Those who are in Christ are now part of his family. And if we belong to Jesus' family, we will love one another in truth and action. Our traits reveal what family we belong to. Whose family do you belong to? Do your lives bear the evidence of that family? If you're a Christian, the command from Scripture is clear. You are to love your fellow believers. You're, love, you're to love them when it's easy and you're to love them when it's hard, when you want to and when you don't. You're to love them because you have been loved and you're to love them how you have been loved. Brothers and sisters, let us love one another in truth, in actuality, in reality. Let us love one another not just with words, but with sacrifice with the greatest sacrifice when it's necessary, but daily with all the smaller sacrifices of bearing with one another and sharing in our afflictions. I pray you'll see how love for your brothers and sisters, even the ones that are difficult and awkward and painful, how that love is a part of your witness. May the unbelieving world see a glorious and accurate picture of Jesus in our love. If you're not a Christian, there's only two families. All of us who are in God's family at one point were not. None of us were born into God's family. We were all welcomed in. There is room for you in God's family. I pray you will see the lavish love that God has given his children in Jesus and hear the invitation to come in. There is no one good but Jesus. There is no one deserving to inherit God's promise but Jesus. All of us are needy and undeserving. Will you turn to Jesus and place your trust in him instead of yourself? Will you come toward love? We long to call you brother and sister. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you today in humility. We who are your children recognize there have been many times when we have failed to look like our Father. We failed to love our brothers and sisters with the impartial love that we've received in Jesus. We've picked favorites and allowed our hearts to grow cold towards some whom you shed your blood for. Will you forgive us? We confess our sin before you. We renounce it. We repent. We're grateful, God, that we're not, you're not finished with us. Will you grow our love for our brothers and sisters and teach us how to live it out? Lord, that we wouldn't love one another with just empty words, but with just the undeniable witness of action and truth. Lord, for those who are not part of your family today, will you save them? Will you rescue them from the clutches of the serpent? Will you show them your truth? Save those who are today your enemies, as you do. You are good and loving, Lord. Show them your mercy, that we may have more brothers and sisters. May your name be praised in all the world, God. Amen.